I'm pretty sure with the grown-ups, I normally am teaching the children, so I'm pretty sure you guys have also been travelling through ACTS. Am I correct? Devro's not, not sure. You're looking at me like, I think I don't know whether I'm in ACTS. Um, I think you guys have also been travelling through ACTS. And um, we've kind of got to the point in the story. Last week we met uh, an issue in the new church where uh, there was, they've grown to such a number and there was such a need of leadership that it required new guys to step up into leadership positions. Yes? Were you there? Does that sound familiar? Some of you are here. Um, so last week, um, one of the guys that was appointed into leadership was this guy called Stephen. Um, and so today we're going to spend a bit more time talking about Stephen. Um, it was really exciting what was happening in the Jerusalem church at that time. There was loads of people being added to the church, loads of people being saved. Um, and, but it wasn't always easy. Um, the, the, the apostles had been arrested, they'd been thrown in jail, they'd been released with caution, they'd been thrown in jail again. And then um, we now find ourselves in a bit of the story where the apostles have been released um, and were able to do a bit of ministry, um, but there was still persecution for these new Christians. They were still facing uh, the reality of following God when it's tough. Um, so in the passage that we're uh, reading today is a very long passage. Heads up, we've got over a chapter. I think this is possibly the longest we've ever had to preach through a passage before. So I'm basically, instead of front-loading the reading, I'm going to read a chunk, or I'm, ideally some of you are going to read, read some bits, and then we'll talk about it, and then we'll read some bit and talk about it. Is that okay? Just because it's very, very long. Um, excellent. Well, at the risk of kind of pausing and waiting for anyone else to turn up, um, let's start. We're, gonna, we're in Acts chapter 6. We're picking up verse 8. Um, so to read the, just that last bit of Acts chapter 6. Would anybody read it for us? I'll read it. Great. Thanks. From, chapter, from verse 8. From verse 8, just to the beginning of verse 7. Chapter 7. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Wonderful. Great. Well, this is Stephen. Um, Stephen was a man who we, we met in last week, who was a deacon in the church. He was given a kind of very practical job of serving and caring for people and bringing leadership in some of the administration in the church. But he was also, as we read here, a man full of grace and power, a man who performed signs and wonders in God's name, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit and a man that was falsely accused here in this passage. And he describes at the end there, uh, a man whose face was like the face of an angel. Um, it was standard practice um, when someone was put on trial in those days, um, they're brought into this kind of chamber, 
as Stephen was in this moment, brought in uh, to put on trial. And it was, it was standard practice for the council to kind of look intently at a person, to almost try and see through their eyes into their heart. It was kind of standard practice just to try and gauge innocence or guilt based on, um, based on what they can see, basically. Uh, it's interesting the use of the word angel here to say he looked like an angel because some of those in the court there in the council staring intently at him would have been the Sanhedrins. Uh, sorry, the Sanhedrins, uh, the name of the council, it would have been the Sadducees. The Sadducees were people who didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the supernatural. So it's very interesting that they've described him, that all there saw that Stephen had the face of an angel for people who didn't believe in angels. Interesting. Um, an angel speaks of somebody sent by God. An angel is one of God's ambassadors, one of God's messengers. Um, often in scripture, it's used to describe a supernatural being, but it's sometimes used to describe a man um, who's sent by God. And so in this moment, uh, the light of God on the inside of Stephen was clearly evident on the outside. As they looked at Stephen and they gazed into his heart, what they saw was a man sent by God. Well, it kind of feels like there's no need for a trial at this point, don't you think? <laughs> They've had a pretty good gaze at him. Everybody there, they must have been turning to each other. Hey, did you see his face like an angel? Did you see his face like an angel? There, was, there must have been a pretty good consensus at this point of his innocence, um, just by the way that they gazed at him. But yet, Stephen goes on to talk. So what's, what is Stephen charged with? Stephen is charged with blasphemy. Blasphemy. He's charged with rejecting the law of Moses and God's dwelling place, the temple. God's dwelling place in the temple, in the new Jerusalem, in that city of Jerusalem. Uh, well, both the temple and Jerusalem were highly respected, highly revered by Jews in these days. Um, after all, this is where God had chosen to live, right? This is where God had chosen to dwell. So to speak against the temple, to speak against the holy city, was to speak against God. And God had given the law of Moses as a means of obedience to suggest that God's rules had changed was to question God's word. Blasphemy. So being charged against speaking against the temple and where God chooses to live and speaking against uh, the law of Moses and how God tells us to live. It was two charges brought against, um, brought against him in this moment. And I hope there'll be a slide that just reinforces that now, John. It's seamlessly down. Um, to introduce us to Stephen. Here he is. Um, there we go, to clarify all that I've just said. Um, next one then, John. It's interesting that um, I, think, I think Luke, who writes the book of Acts, has, has described Stephen to sound a little bit like Christ to us, because after all, Christ was also falsely accused of blasphemy. He was also charged with speaking against the temple and against God. Jesus, of course, was also recognized as from God in that moment as he died the soldier said surely this man was from God also those that killed him suspected he was from God Jesus also tells the religious leaders and the religious elite that they've rejected God and killed his prophets that's what Stephen goes on to say and Jesus also as he dies prays Lord forgive them and accept my spirit exactly what Stephen goes on to pray and of course as Jesus was up on the mountain in the transfiguration, his face shone, just like it describes Stephen's face to shine. I think Luke, as he's writing this, is wanting us to see a picture of Christ as he describes Stephen. So 
We're going to read about Stephen's speech and what he says in his trial. Um, and as I say, we're going to break that up. Um, Stephen takes us as, on a journey as listeners back through history. Um, why, why does he bother doing that? You know, as I picked up this passage, and as you no doubt pick up this passage, you think, what on earth is he doing talking about Abraham and Joseph and Moses? What, like, why does he bother? Like, Stephen knows he's on trial before these people, and he knows that he's outnumbered. He knows that he's being charged with all the stuff that Jesus was charged with, and Jesus subsequently was executed. And therefore, he must have been thinking, what, am I just delaying the inevitable here? Shall I just, I know, I'll give a really long story, and then they won't be able to kill me, because I'll just be talking for a really long time. Is that what he was doing? Maybe he's trying to find common ground with the Jews, saying, hey, let's talk about the guys we've got in common to try and help, you know, I'm, I'm not a bad guy after all. Is that what he was doing? I actually think Stephen's doing something way deeper than this. You see, they've charged him with blasphemy against the temple and about the law. But at the root of those two issues um, is the two questions that I think Stephen answers through his narrative. He answers, where is God's presence? And he answers, how do we obey God? So Stephen takes them back in time, back through history, to show them that those have always been the questions uh, facing God's people. And he wants to show them that the charge against him is false because their understanding of these issues is false. So uh, let's, uh, let's jump into chapter seven. And we're going to read the first bit of Stephen's speech as he takes us through. Um, I am going to continue to ask for readers, I'm afraid. So if you've got your Bible, you're going to continue to be asked um, to pipe up. I'm looking for someone to just read the first eight verses of chapter seven. Get your Bibles out. Um, Dave, will you read us the first, the first so, uh, verse 1 to 8 of chapter 7? Then the high priest said, Are these things so? And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. And he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And, and from there, when his father was dead, he moved into the land in which you know well. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. Mm. But even when Abraham, uh, Abraham, not Abraham, Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after, after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Do you want eight as well? And verse 8 as well, yeah. Then he gave him the covenant, then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Wonderful. Thanks, Dave. You know, as um, 
As we begin to meet each of these characters, I've, I'm just going to call out the parts of their story, as we've read here, that talks about where they are, where God's presence is, that talks about how they were obedient to God's law and what God's law looked like for them. And I'm going to call out the moment of trial for them, because I, I think as Stephen retells this story, Stephen would help us understand that God's presence and God's law are kind of tested in that moment under suffering. So... Stephen starts this, uh, starts his big speech with uh, the God of glory. Brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory. You know, um, this is God's story. It's not ours. And I think, um, I don't know about you, but it's, um, it's very easy to find yourself quite selfishly thinking about this being my story. And um, uh, my daughter, Anna, has a favourite book. Uh, she loves reading Anna, the Arctic Fox Fairy um, of the Rainbow Magic series. I'm sure you've all read it. Um, Anna, the Arctic Fox Fairy. I mean, how exciting is it to find a book with your name on it, right? This is the, the most exciting thing for a seven-year-old girl. Um, as I sat and read Anna, the Arctic Fox Fairy with Anna, you'll never guess what. But in Anna, the Arctic Fox Fairy comes the character Becky. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm in Anna's story. <laughs> it's so exciting. Never, never is there a character called Becky in a book. I'm just going to put it out there. You read them. <laughs> Becky's never in there. But Becky's in Anna the Arctic Fox Fairy. And Anna and I had great fun reading the story together with our names in it. But you know what? As much as it was exciting to read about Becky uh, in the story, the story's not about me. It's not about Becky. The story is about Anna the Arctic Fox Fairy. Much to my dismay, the story's not about me, even though my name's in there. And Stephen recognises that this story isn't about him. It's not about Abraham, it's not about Joseph, it's not about Moses. It is about the God of glory. It's his name on the front cover of the book, not ours. So let's talk about Abraham. Abraham... Uh, Abraham, straight away, we're confronted with this question in the life of Abraham. Where was God? Where was God? Well, Abraham, of course, wasn't in the Holy Land. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He was actually in modern-day Iraq at this point. And he, he was in Mesopotamia. He was in Haran. But he was not in Jerusalem. And it actually goes on to point out in verse 5 that he didn't even have a foot of land. He didn't even own a foot. Not even a foot. There was definitely no temple there wasn't even a foot, yet God was with him. Verse 2. You know, God's promise for a people wasn't dependent upon land. It was dependent upon hearts. And so God gives this covenant of circumcision. Circumcision literally means to cut out, to set apart. God was looking for hearts that would be cut out for him. He was looking for people who would be set apart Paul underlines this in Romans 2. He says that true circumcision isn't an outward act. It's actually a setting apart of your heart to God. So, guys, is, is your heart set apart for God? Not just in act and in how we behave, but in how our hearts are. Abraham knew what hardship was like. He had to move to an unknown land. He had to just pack up his stuff and go. And I know I'm not the only one in the room here who's had to pack up and move um, and relocate across the country. And I'm sure I'm not the only one who found that process really hard. Um, the reality for us, of course, is that we knew where we were going. 
We got to visit Swindon before we got here. We got to go and look at houses. We got to make new friends before we arrived. Abraham and his family knew none of that. They had to get up and go. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know anyone there. They had to go. It was unknown. It was risky. And it relied wholly on trusting God. But God was there with them. Abraham honoured God, both in being set apart in circumcision, as well as going in obedience into the unknown place. Let's read on. Um, will I have someone read verse 9 to 16? Don't all bite at words. Thanks, Cindy. Oh, we're jumping into chapter 7, sorry, verse 9. Sorry, Sorry. should have clarified. No, no, sorry, my bad. Should have clarified. These patriarchs were jealous of their brother Joseph, and they sold him to the city, but God was with him, and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favour before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom, so that Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of the palace. For a famine came upon Egypt and Canaan. There was great misery, and our ancestors ran out of food. Jacob heard that there was still grain in Egypt, so he sent his sons, our ancestors, to buy some. The second time they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers, and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt. 75 and Amazing, thanks Cindy. Uh, Joseph then. We're now on to Joseph. Stephen takes us into this next part of history. Of course, he's cut out a fair few of the guys in the middle, so Stephen's really making a point about something. So why has he picked Joseph? Well, uh, you guys will probably know a bit about Joseph already. Um, of course, we've all, uh, we've all enjoyed singing the songs. I guess I'm not the only one. Um, do you know what? I had the great honour of playing Levi in the school play once when we did uh, Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Those songs. Yes, those songs. Which songs were you singing? Uh, all about Jacob and Sons and, you know, oh, the, the Calypso swing. Like, oh, honestly, it's a great musical, isn't it? Um, such a joyful musical, um, yet the reality for Joseph isn't, isn't actually as joyful as that musical would make out, right? Joseph's story is actually pretty horrible. Um, he lived in Egypt, again, wasn't in the promised land, wasn't in the temple, wasn't in Jerusalem. And in Egypt, he was rejected by his own family. He, was, he had to live through famine. And he, even worse, he had to take on the pressures of leadership uh, during those times of hardship. But verse 9 tells us that God was with him in Egypt. God honoured Joseph's obedient heart with wisdom. And he was given leadership and authority. And it ultimately ensured the salvation and the redemption of God's people. You know, when I played Levi in the school play... Uh, we had quite a lot of like younger kids who were kind of, it was supposed to be like a, I was secondary school, so I guess they must have been key stage three or whatever that would have been, the younger years. It was supposed to be their performance. But I was one of the older ones who was brought in to kind of help bring a bit of leadership to these younger brothers of mine, right? I felt very proud of my leadership. 
I was very pleased with my role, being one of the brothers that got to, you know, look after the little children. You can see why I teach the children most of the time. Um, <laughs> but actually, the directors of the play hadn't picked one of us to be Joseph. They'd picked one of the little children to be Joseph. And there was a humility in this process for me that said, you know what, I've got a leadership role here, but I'm not the leader. And I think, I think Joseph's brothers had to experience some of this in reality, right? Their little brother was appointed in leadership over them. You know, Stephen makes the point when he retells this story to highlight that the family had rejected the one that God chose to bring salvation for his people. I think he's bringing a parallel with Jesus. Already now, in his retelling, he's going, hey, look how these guys rejected the one that God chose. And as we'll see, that's what Stephen goes on to say that they were doing as well. You know, Stephen uses this language as, as we read it. He says, your, your ancestors, our ancestors, your ancestors. He's saying, do you know what, guys? There's a family history here of rejecting the person that God chooses to lead us. It's in our hearts to reject God in our flesh. You know what? These ancestors repented of their hard-heartedness and they acknowledged God's choosing and placing of Joseph. Who are we to say how God should work, right? So often we like to think, hey, God, you should do it that way. And actually God likes to say, I'm going to do it however I like. Thank you, Becky. God loves to use unlikely people, people like you and me. Are you open to God using you to bring about his purpose? However scary that might look. Let's read on. We're reading verse 17 to 38. John, will you read for us? Yeah. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race and oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months and when he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbour pushed Moses aside, saying, Who put you as a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the, land of, in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. 
This Moses whom they rejected when they said, who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. That's it? Yeah. yeah. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. <coughs> he is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Amazing. Thank you. So we now meet Moses the next part of Stephen's retelling through history. Um, Of course, Moses was different too. Moses was Christ-like in a way that Stephen is trying to highlight. Again, he's the only other person through scripture who's described as his face shining at one point when he comes face to face with God. There's another man whose face shone. Moses also was an unlikely saviour. He was educated by the Egyptians. He grew up in the palace although he was an Israelite. He grew up in a time of great oppression for God's people, yet as one of God's people, he didn't experience the oppression firsthand. Joseph was an unlikely saviour. Moses was an unlikely saviour. Jesus was an unlikely saviour. You know, Stephen makes the point that um, he was was rejected as ruler and judge, but yet God called him for exactly that role. Moses ran away to a new location. He was in Egypt and he ran away to Midian. And he was living in a foreign land with foreign gods. And yet here, God spoke to him. God appeared to him there in the foreign land Moses was apathetic to God's mission. He was hiding. He was hiding in Midian. He was God's people, yet he made a point of being quite switched off to what God was doing. He knew where God's people were. He knew the suffering they were dealing with, but Moses was hiding. He'd strayed in his heart from God, and yet God called him back through supernatural encounter, and he spoke to them, him there in the bush. Moses repented, And he was obedient and he led God's people out of Egypt, performing signs and wonders along the way. God was with his people in Egypt and God was speaking to Moses in Midian. He showed his power time and time again in the wilderness. God was there in the suffering, in the wandering, in the desert place. God's presence was with them. No temple, no holy land, just God's people with their hearts open in obedience to him. Maybe like Moses, you've experienced rejection. Maybe you've had to run and retreat and guard your heart. Maybe you feel like you're just going through the motions, living with this same sense of apathy that Moses had. God cares about your heart and he cares about your healing. And he's inviting you to trust him and open your heart to him again. I'm gonna read on from verse 39. 39 up to 50. Deborah, will you read for us? 39 to 50. To whom our fathers would not obey, but uh, trust him from there, and in their hearts turn back, say, I gave him to Egypt. Say not to Aaron, make us gods to go before us, for as for this Moses, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, 
what not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of forty years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God, Rempha, figures which ye made to worship them, and I will carry you away, behold, beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacles of witness in the wilderness, and as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, who God drave out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David, who found favor before God and desired to find the tabernacle for God of Jacob. But Solomon built him an house, albeit the most high dwelleth not in the temples made with hands. As saith the prophet, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will he build me, saith the Lord? Or oh, what is the place of my rest? Amazing, thank you. Fantastic. You know, God's people rejected him. They'd experienced his presence with them. He'd experienced the supernatural of God leading them and guiding them out of Egypt, yet they rejected him and they worshipped idols. And they lived in hardship without a home in the wilderness for 40 years. But it was through Joshua's godly leadership, a man whose heart was turned towards God in obedience that the Israelites finally entered that promised land, that holy place where God was supposed to dwell. You know, they experienced countless wars as they took ground, as they entered into the promised land and God was with them. Dave and Janet, you guys are, are currently building a house, which is a great experience, I'm sure you're finding. <laughs> The moment to be able to design and build a house where one day you will live. Your presence isn't there in the house as it's built. And even once you live in your new house, you won't be contained to being in your home. And that's all. We will still experience your presence here on Sunday mornings, I hope, <laughs> as well as any other time around Swindon as you find yourself. You see, uh, Solomon knew this. Isaiah spoke this and Devereux read it, that where on earth can we contain God's presence? God's presence isn't contained into a home or a building. God dwells in the hearts of those who honour him. He always has and he always will. You see, God wants to make his home in you. Whether you're in the promised land of favour and abundance or whether you're in the wilderness place of hardship and suffering. Will you open your heart and let God in? Will you choose to live in obedience and worship of God? Or will your affections first go to the things of this world, to the idols of today? There's the last few verses I'm just going to read. 
Picking up at verse 51, it says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he... Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. You know, in Stephen's day, there was suffering. Stephen paid the ultimate cost for his obedience to God. Stephen knew God's presence with him there outside of the holy city. Why they, why they felt they needed to remove this sin and do the stoning of Stephen outside of the city is beyond me because Stephen has already articulated so beautifully that God's presence goes with them even there. Stephen saw that God's presence isn't limited to a room. It's not limited to a building or a city. In being filled with the Holy Spirit, Stephen saw heaven opened. And as he looked and he gazed, he saw Jesus standing in glory with the Father. Stephen knew God was with him. God's glory and his presence isn't limited. Not by you, not by me, not by anything that this world can think of. God chooses to make his home in our hearts by his grace and his mercy. Not because he needs us. Not because we are in any way worthy of hosting God's presence in our sinful lives. But because of his great love for us. He's with us. Stephen answered that question, where is God's presence? That question that throughout history they'd wondered, where is God's presence? God's presence is with his people. Stephen stood firm in the midst of trials. He chose to honour God. No, that's right. He chose to honour God in the worst moment of suffering. How? How did Stephen stand firm in that moment? as he was flogged to death by this mob, this angry crowd, this angry crowd of of leaders, this angry crowd of very well put together people got so cross that they stoned him to death. How? Well, he looked up and he saw the glory of God and he kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. As he gazed at the majesty and the glory of the King of heaven, he experienced God's Holy Spirit presence with him. And as he saw the holiness of God, he was confronted with the sin of his people. And so in that moment, Stephen, by gazing at Jesus, was able to pray, forgive them. Because by seeing the holiness of God, it contrasts with the sin in our world. And Stephen stood in the gap, just like Joseph did, just like Moses did, just like Jesus did. And he prayed, forgive them. In our day, there is suffering. Many of us have experienced rejection, hurt, 
oppression. We've known isolation. We've known uncertainty, abandonment even. In our trials and our suffering, we're confronted with the same question that Stephen answered. How do we obey God? Guys, it's by gazing at the glory of Jesus. It's by keeping our eyes fixed on his holiness. We find strength by seeing Jesus so that we can stay set apart in obedience to him and so that we can experience his presence with us wherever we go. Whether you are standing in worship with believers or whether you are sitting in the waiting room or by yourself, God's presence is there with you. Whether you're joyfully celebrating or whether you're crying in suffering, God is right there with you. You know, we're going to stand to pray. Will you stand with me now? Let's do that. You know, maybe you have experienced rejection. Maybe you're carrying hurt. Maybe there's people that you have experienced suffering at the hands of. That in this moment, as we gaze at Jesus, we can pray, Lord, forgive them. Maybe that's, maybe that's what you need to do this morning. Maybe, like Moses in Midian, you know that your heart has wandered and you've grown in apathy and going through the motions. God is calling you to follow him wholeheartedly, to be obedient, to go wherever he sends, to say yes to his calling of you. And maybe you're experiencing suffering or maybe you're experiencing celebration. But as we gaze at Jesus in his glory this morning, let's ask for him to fill us afresh with his presence, that he will go with us, that he will strengthen us and empower us for whatever the mission outside of these walls is. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the king of glory that you are highly exalted and that you, Jesus, are the saviour of the world. You're the one that God appointed as our redeemer, as our rescuer, as our saviour. Jesus, we thank you that you died in our place for our sin. We thank you that you've made a way for us to know you and to carry your presence. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you make your home in us. We pray for your power we pray for your presence. And we pray, Father, that in gazing at you now, that you would strengthen us in our suffering and that you would help us to forgive those who've rejected us or hurt us. Lord Jesus, we give you our hurt. We open our hearts to you again. Lord Jesus, would you come? Make your home with us.